Rosa Luxemburg's The Mass Strike. The very first thing to mention, to head off any confusion, is that if you're reading the pamphlet for the first time, there are lots of references to social democracy. We're of course not talking about something like the Labour Party, but the pre-World War I socialist movement, which aimed at the extension of democracy to all areas of society, hence social democracy. The support of the majority of social democratic parties for their own bourgeoisies in World War I led to the discrediting of the term, and most groups thereafter called themselves communist, or at least some variant of socialist. So that's what's meant by social democracy. Luxembourg wrote this pamphlet in 1906, after the great strike wave in Russia in the previous year. Now there had been general strikes before 1905. Workers in Belgium launched three general strikes, in 1891, 93 and 1902, in order to widen voting rights. And before even that, there was a general strike in England in 1842. But the mass strike movement, which exploded in Russia in 1905, was something else. Its sheer scale made it become the focus of all future discussions of mass strikes. The 1905 movement started with strikes in January and February, at first in St. Petersburg, and then spreading throughout Russia and the Russian Empire. This is detailed in Chapter 3 of Luxembourg's pamphlet. Strikes continued throughout the summer, and then exploded into a general strike in October. On the 13th of October, the strikers in St. Petersburg formed a coordinating committee made of elected representatives, the St. Petersburg Soviet of Workers' Deputies. Soviet is the Russian word for council. In a very nascent form, it began to function as an alternative government. Leon Trotsky was a leading figure in it. He wrote underground leaflets in 1905, at first in Kiev, and then moved to St. Petersburg to continue agitating. After fleeing from police repression in the summer, he returned to the city on the 15th of October, and the same day, he spoke to the St. Petersburg Soviet Council of Workers' Deputies, which was meeting at the Technological Institute. And as well as the elected deputies, there was a crowd of 200,000 people on the streets, listening to all the proceedings. He was subsequently elected as vice-chairman of the Soviet, and in November elected as its chair. The general strike ended on the 21st of October, but agitation and protest continued in parts of the country. In St. Petersburg until the 3rd of December, when the Soviet was arrested en masse, and to the 10th and the 15th of December in Moscow, when an armed workers' uprising was defeated. Mass repression then escalated under Stilipin's government. Over 3,000 people were arrested and put to death for their political activity. The workers' movement was driven underground, but as we know from history, only temporarily. There are several key themes in Luxembourg's pamphlet. It's important that Luxembourg wasn't just describing the countrywide general strike of October 1905, but the whole wave of strikes in that year, starting with small disputes over wage cuts, pensions, the sacking of a colleague, that spread to become general strikes of whole towns or industries, and of course the socialist agitation and preparation that took place in the decade beforehand. For an analogy in British history, the waves of struggle to organise workers in non-union industries in the 1880s, known as New Unionism or the Great Unrest, were far, far nearer to what Luxembourg thought of as a mass strike movement, and just a single set-piece battle, like, say, the general strike of 1926, let alone the one-day protest strikes of today.
Now, the full title of the pamphlet is The Mass Strike, The Political Party and the Trade Unions. Luxembourg wanted to stress the importance of supporting mass strikes, as opposed to the conservatism of the trade union and party bureaucracies, which wanted to delay such mass confrontations, and against those who sought to call it into being from thin air. Some leaders of the German SPD, like Kautsky, came to think that capitalism's internal contradictions would inevitably move to a final capitalist crisis, and therefore the workers' movement need only build up its own organisation, awaiting the final hour in which the workers' movement would be strong enough to just ride through the crisis and be able to transform society. Increasingly, this organisation focused primarily on building workers' parties in bourgeois parliaments, to the detriment of other activity. In Kautsky's view, a mass strike is an exponentially scaled-up version of a single dispute, but scaled up to the level of a general confrontation between the classes. Either the strike wins outright, and the battle of democracy swings in favour of the working class, or else the strike collapses, and like a local union branch which has lost a strike and has become demoralised, the whole working class suffers the same fate. Therefore, the best thing to do is avoid even discussion of mass strike tactics until you are confident that the battle will be won before it has even started. This is a perfect recipe for political conservatism and reformist socialism. Indeed, in 1905, the SPD gave the unions a secret directive, promising that they would never offer political direction to its leadership. Anarchists, by contrast, imagined a general strike which would overturn society in a smooth and straightforward fashion. Marxists responded that the perfect organisation required to sustain and continue that general strike was impossible under capitalism, and anyway, if it could be reached, the perfect organisation would make the detour of a general strike unnecessary. If you're demanding a wage increase, you can just put your hands in your pocket and stop work until they cave in but that is not the same as controlling the means of production. In all these visions of the revolution, how the scenario related to the struggle in the here and now was unclear. They were millenarian visions of the future, either waiting for the perfect crisis or the perfect organisation, with no strategy for linking small local battles into a larger programme, for the eight-hour day, for universal suffrage, for a democratic republic or for workers' rule itself. The mass strike cannot be called from above, as Luxembourg said, after a preconceived plan and at the party's word, like, say, a publication deadline, or made to order on a given day like a McDonald's burger. But it is the result of long and unglamorous work of agitation and organisation by socialists and activists, and it comes out of social conditions and the class struggle itself. Rosa Luxemburg's observation that the mass strike is an organic part of high-class struggle and not a tactic planned and controlled from above has often been interpreted as a theory of spontaneity, a doctrine of working-class revolution developing as a spontaneous industrial explosion with little contribution from a revolutionary political party. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of Luxemburg's life work. She was always a party socialist and was a leading theoretician and activist in the social democracy of the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania and in the German SPD and was of course a founding member of the KPD, the German Communist Party. The mass strike is not a pamphlet against socialist agitation and organisation but against the conservatism of the party bureaucracies and the secretive organising methods 
It is a pamphlet against utopian alchemists who sought to conjure mass movements into being without engaging in the mass movement as it exists. It is a pamphlet against the unions who sought only short-term economic victories with disconnect from other political demands. Of course, the distinction between the economic and the political is deliberately obfuscated by the ruling class. They want us to think that we can have some limited political changes, but the fundamentals of the economy, of private property, are sacrosanct, natural and unchangeable. And to some extent, we also refer to, say, economic strikes over a wage increase, and political strikes, say, for the vote. But of course, all economic strikes pose political questions. Will the police bust up our picket lines? What laws govern our strikes? What rights do we have, like freedom of speech, to spread our ideas? And political strikes pose economic questions. In the fight for the eight-hour day nationally, what other changes can be won in workplaces? Over pay, pensions, working conditions and so on. In the final chapter of the pamphlet, Luxembourg says, There are not two different class struggles of the working class, an economic and a political one, but only one class struggle. And the largest strikes provoke even larger questions about the world. Writing in 1936 about the factory occupations of car workers in Flint, Michigan, Leon Trotsky said, Every sit-down strike poses in a practical manner the question of who is the boss in the factory, the capitalist or the workers. At their fastest tempo, mass strikes pose the very question of political and economic power, which class runs society. Luxembourg sought to bring together the different fronts of the class struggle, to work agitation for political rights into the party's work in economic struggles, and to work slogans which broadened out the fight over suffrage and other political demands so as to express more general class interests, with the class struggle unfolding on multiple fronts simultaneously. She saw the programme of the working class not as a linear series of steps, like a manual for an IKEA wardrobe, but as a network of demands which interact with and reinforce each other, which, as a totality, represent a radically different programme for the organisation of society. This is a very similar vision of an interlocking set of demands which Trotsky and others would later call a transitional programme. We should not issue abstract calls for the TUC to call a general strike. Rather, we should look at the next step, the next link in the chain, which the labour movement needs to take in order to advance itself. We should call for rank-and-file networks to be set up and unions to be democratised and to bind the fight to win on local issues together with national disputes. We shouldn't see ourselves as armchair generals executing orders from a central committee but rather as part of a democratic collective that debates as it acts, learns from the history of the movement and proposes initiatives and ideas to the broader labour movement that rather than imposing the logic of abstract slogans or flavour of the month slogans knocked together behind closed doors, instead follows the logic of the class struggle.